This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. As we heard last week, essential workers, racial equity advocates, and those with pre-existing medical conditions were all pretty angry after the state decided to change the vaccine rollout to a strictly age-based system. But state officials are sticking by their decision, and they say this new plan will be the best way to protect the most people the fastest, and in the process, save a lot of lives. Josh Jabal, the chief operating officer for Connecticut, has been spearheading this vaccine effort. Today on Steady Habits, he joins me to talk about the reasons for the state's vaccine shift, how Connecticut's addressing the questions of vaccine equity, the rollout for educators in an effort to open all schools, and how the state plans to administer these new one-shot vaccines that are now being made available. To start, though, I asked him to lay out the decision-making process. How did the state arrive at this decision that resulted in a new March 1st rollout of an entirely age-based system? So as we were working over the last weeks and and really months since the CDC put out the original guidance around frontline essential workers and high-risk medical conditions, and we were really starting to get down to the end and the nitty-gritty details. You know, we're dealing with three major considerations, all of which had massive problems associated with them. So, first of all, uh, you had the question of how do you define eligibility? So, for a frontline essential worker, they gave us these very high-level categories, but we had to drill them down into the fine-grained details. And you start dealing with issues like, you know, if you take food and and grocery workers, for example, we can all quickly agree that. You know, the people working in our supermarkets throughout this pandemic are some of the the, the real heroes um, out there. But, you know, do you also include people working in, in convenience stores? Uh, what, what about the gas stations, the big box stores that sell, you know, some food in the back? Um, what about the people who deliver to those stores? Are you going to make a difference between the people working the registers and the people in the back office and the accounting department? So you had all these kinds of issues or another one of my one of, one of the, you know, kind of most clear examples is that the CDC included uh, postal service workers on the list. Um, makes sense. Um, but they did not include FedEx and UPS drivers doing similar work. Literally, the people delivering the very vaccines that we're talking about, not included. So there were a lot of issues there. Then you go to the high-risk medical conditions categories. And, you know, we we're talking to our healthcare providers and the doctors about the ambiguity that existed in a lot of the categories there. They were very concerned about how they would be able to make the tough calls around who really should be prioritized or not. There were a lot of uh, concerning uh, gaps and expectations. We were hearing from a lot of people who assumed they were on the CDC list that were not. There was actually two CDC lists people may be aware of. Um, You had type 2 diabetes on the first list and and type 1 not and type 1 on the second list and, you know, a whole host of other issues. But then you get to the second uh, issue we were dealing with, which is when when you take all those groups and you and you try to size how many people are actually included who are not yet eligible. We were getting between one point one and one point five million people who would have been included, um, which is, you know, over two thirds of the remaining adult population, um, including, you know, all of these different categories. So that would never have worked. We would have had to further um, segment that group to make it feasible. Um, and, you know, the most likely way you, you segment is by age, because that's what's most correlated with uh, severe illness and death. So we're kind of back to where we started. And then the third and final big issue we were dealing with was how do you run the process? How do you actually operationalize this? We're dealing with issues like, you know, are you going to require proof? 
right? So for a high-risk medical condition, that would be a doctor's note. Are we going to set off a mad scramble of, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people running out to their doctors to try to get notes? Some of the conditions on there, like smoking, we, we couldn't even figure out how you would prove that you know, that was the case or that we wouldn't have people pick it up to try to get prioritized. Our healthcare providers there were, were terrified of what this would imply and how they would manage it while they're already overstressed dealing with COVID for a year. Or if you had eligibility based on your employment, what was the proof in that case? Is it pay stubs? Is it other documentation? You know, we're seeing in other states now people showing up with forged documents. Um, and then we had the, the overarching concern around you know, requiring proof is that do you disadvantage people who you know, don't have good access to doctors who wouldn't be able to get that note as quickly as possible, take time off of work? What about people who are unemployed or undocumented? Are we going to scare them away? Um, so then the alternative to that would be you have no proof, right? You just go on an honor system. Um, but we've seen how this is playing out in some other states, and it kind of results in the process breaking down people with connections, you know, being able to jump the line and get prioritized. We were really concerned about both intentional and unintentional, candidly, because of the confusion factor, uh, line jumping, and that the, the process would essentially implode. So, you know, we, we just kind of took a step back and went back to first principles around what are we, what are we most focused on trying to do here? And, and you start with prevent people from dying, right? We're a year into this. We have a lot of data now about who's actually dying from COVID-19. And what is very clear is that across all ages and across all races and ethnicities, you work backwards by age because that fundamentally is who's dying with COVID-19. The analysis that uh, we've done here at the Mirror, and I know that you've done a lot of this yourself, though shows that much younger populations amongst Black and Latino people are dying than white people. And so by advantaging people to get the vaccine by age, you're essentially saying that people who are at a very high risk of dying from the disease, who are, say, 55 and black and an essential worker, aren't going to be getting the vaccine as quickly. It's actually just the opposite, John. And I thank you for raising this because this is one of the most commonly misunderstood benefits of this age-based program. When, when you look at who is younger than 65 years old, so this is you know basically everyone who this decision impacted, people actually technically older than 16 because the vaccines are only authorized for people 16 and above. So between 16 and 64, that's what we're talking about here. If you look at who is dying uh, by age decile, it, of the, we've had about 1,000 deaths in, in those age groups since the pandemic began. 69% of those, the deaths occurred in people who are ages 55 to 64, 69%. That happens to be the exact same number for whites, 69%. Happens to be slightly higher for blacks, 71% of the blacks that have died between uh, 16 and 64 are in that 55 to 64 year age range. And 59% of, uh, of people identify as Hispanic. So by going to 55 to 64 next, you actually are opening up directly to the people who are in, in all races and ethnicities who are most at risk of dying. And the benefit of this is by prioritizing just them, as opposed to the 1.1 to 1.5 million people who would have been included had we stayed the course, those people now are in a pool, an eligibility pool that's a half to a third as large as what it would have been, meaning they're going to get their appointment for their vaccine two to three times faster than they would have if they were 
chasing appointment slots, fighting with, you know, perfectly healthy 20 and 30 year olds. So, So, yeah, and I I heard um, uh, Commissioner Gifford tell WNPR this, essentially the same thing, right? That the, that essential workers might end up getting their shots around the same time because the waits for people in those large job classifications would take so long, they might get their uh, doses sooner or at least the same time, just going by an age-based range. The issue, though, then is we have made an exception for teachers. Why that exception? Another very important uh, question. And, and the rationale here is, is to consider that we're not just talking about getting people vaccinated. That's obviously the, the most important thing here, preventing severe illness and death. Um, but we're also, we, we can't forget the, the children in all of this, right? And the governor, as I think everyone is aware, has been passionate from last summer when we were coming up on the new school year and figuring out how do we get kids some semblance of a normal educational experience this year. And we fought so hard to get schools open safely. Um, and we're now on the back side of this, we think, and we're pushing to get schools open as quickly as we can. One of the biggest issues that we've been seeing over and over again is that um, not a lot of teachers getting sick and having to, you know, qu- you know, leave the school and isolate, but a lot of teachers getting exposed either, you know, outside in their private lives or whatever, and then having to quarantine and, and the chain of those quarantines resulting in schools getting closed down for periods of time. My son, my son's school just was closed for two weeks because of exactly this issue. So the good news is one of the many good things about getting vaccinated is that once you're fully vaccinated, if you're exposed to someone who's positive with COVID-19, you don't have to quarantine anymore. So getting all of our educators, the people in and around our schools vaccinated will help take off the table one of the major sources of disruptions and give our kids the best shot at, you know, several solid months of five day in the school education before we get to the end of the year. There's a really important equity component to this too, John, which is, as you know, many of the schools that have had the hardest time getting open are in some of our cities with some of our most disadvantaged um, children. And so, you know, this is a really important factor that, that we factored in as well. Yeah. And there's a lot of questions around the, the way the teacher uh, vaccinations are being rolled out that I have. I mean, one is the mirror's just just uh, done a story about a lot of hesitancy amongst parents because even if the teachers get vaccinated, there is concern that their children by going to school are going to be bringing that disease home to them. Whether or not the science shows that frankly doesn't matter if people feel like that's what's going to happen. And so I'm wondering how you're addressing that particular piece of it. Essentially what they're saying is we might not see kids all going back to school anyway because there's a lot of worries amongst parents. Yeah, I, I did see the article and I think it's, I understand the concern and it's a, it's a, something we're concerned about as well, but you can't even start to address that concern if the school's not open. I mean, it's like the, there's a prerequisite here, which is for someone to go to school, the school actually has to be open. So we start there and then we can start to chip away at the other concerns that people have and the, and the you know the hesitancy that folks may have to send their kids back in. I, I do think we've got a lot of evidence built up now that, you know, when everyone's wearing masks, whatever format they're in, whether it's a barbershop or a school or, or an airplane, right? It's it, The masks actually work really, really well. So I think people will increasingly figure that out, especially if our overall metrics as a state continue to trend in a good direction. I want to go away from schools for a second because you talked about masks. One of the concerns that we're getting from people in, say, the supermarket worker community is that they work and have been working for a year now in environments that are not anywhere near as well controlled as schools. In in schools, you can say, everyone's going to mask up. We're going to put partitions. We're going to have all sorts of rules. 
I've been to a supermarket, you've been to a supermarket, doesn't work quite like that. And so how do you address the fact that people who are working in much more difficult conditions that are much less controlled have to keep going to work under those conditions? Yeah, no, it's it's a very fair concern. Um, I think we're fortunate in Connecticut that overall, I think certainly relative to a lot of other states, um, Connecticut and New England in general, I think we're pretty good here, um, you know, about wearing masks and, and wearing them properly when we're in controlled spaces. Um, but look, it, it is a fair concern. This is part of being part of the community. Um, and, but at the end of the day, look, we want to get those, those supermarket workers vaccinated as quickly as possible. Many of them are older. They are getting prioritized. The ones most at risk of getting infected and then having a severe outcome, they're getting prioritized because of their age. Um, but, you know, th- at the end of the day, this one of the other major benefits of our age based approach is it takes it prevents us from introducing a whole bunch of bureaucracy and rules and confusion that will ha- would have been introduced this week at exactly the time the supply of vaccine is ramping up dramatically. And we would have ended up with a lot more doses on freezer shelves as opposed to going into people's arms, getting the community to herd immunity, which is going to protect everybody. You you were talking about concerns about line jumping or things that you've seen in other states. Have we seen people doing that in Connecticut? I mean, is there is there real evidence that that was something that people were engaging in here? Well, we've we've had a couple examples that have been well publicized. I think there was a school district that, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they just misinterpreted, you know, at a transition point what the what the rules were. I, I, you know, you hear little anecdotes here and there. I think they've been pretty rare. But, you know, we, in, in many cases with this decision, we didn't have to guess. There's other states that have gone far down this other path already. Just look across the border to New York. You know, several weeks ago, they opened up eligibility very wide to a whole long list of frontline essential workers, people with high-risk medical conditions, so we could look at how that's played out. And the results, uh, you know, I think are pretty clear that it's not going well. I mean, they're, they're going very slow. I think they're 44th today on the list of, you know, percentage of their population that's gotten their first dose. There are um, no better outcomes with regards to an equitable distribution of vaccine among um, black and brown community. And in fact, that some of the data I've seen suggests they're, they're, they're even further behind than we are. Um, and, you know, look, if you live in Connecticut, you have friends in New York. That's just how it works. And I'm sure we've all heard anecdotes right now of, you know, people with, with connections or relationships because there's all these categories and confusion. There's a lot of people getting their way to the front of the line that probably shouldn't. And so, you know, that equation did not look attractive to us at all. And so as one of the, you know, one of the equa- and I don't mean to just pick on New York. There's other states in this category as well. So we, we're trying to learn from what's working, what's not working. I've heard this from people, and since you made a bunch of it, I'll I'll ask you directly. Uh, several people, including one of the people that I talked to on on my podcast last week, have said to me the state's just really concerned about where they are in that list. You mentioned New York being down to forty fourth. Connecticut's always been sixth or eighth or whatever else. I mean, how much do you look at that? How much do you care? How fair is that for people to to say? Um, well, look, I, I, the governor made this point in our in our press conference on Monday. Uh, speed matters, right? And it's, it's not just for rankings. It's because that is the measure of how many doses you're getting into people's arms. Um, you know, and, and we showed the graphic that basically did the math. You know, if we were, we're at about, as of yesterday, we're about 19.5% of the Connecticut population who received their first dose. The national average is about 15%. So you say four and a half percentage points, big deal. Well, four and a half percentage points of the state population is about 160,000 doses that if we were going slower, if we were going at just the national average, 
would be sitting in freezers right now, as opposed to where they actually are, which is having been received by a Connecticut resident. And, you know, governor made the point, you know, a dose sitting in a freezer doesn't save anybody's life. It doesn't keep anyone out of the hospital. It doesn't help us get a school reopened. It doesn't prevent transmission. It doesn't help jobs get restored. So yeah, getting, getting the doses into people's arms fast makes a difference. We, we are focused on that. Absolutely. You know, what, one of the things I was looking at though, is another state that's quite a bit further down the list. Virginia is a state that I know has been giving priority to people with pre-existing medical conditions. Now they're not getting the doses out at the same rate in terms of first doses as Connecticut, but in terms of second doses, people who are now fully vaccinated, they're tracking a little bit better, essentially the same as Connecticut right now. This can be done using those CDC guidelines that that other states have, have gone with. It, it is possible, and we've seen it happen. Um, sure. I don't know much about Virginia, but look, I mean, it's it, it, important to remember, too, we, we are vaccinating an enormous number of people with pre-existing conditions. Those also happen to correlate by age, right? When, when you get down to 55 and above, you know, we're, we're picking up the vast majority of people who do have those conditions. Um, so look, we're not we're not saying, you know, we're perfect. We're not saying our way is the only way to do this. Um, I will say, though, I, you know, yesterday, Maine announced that they're now going to cut over to a strictly age based approach. Um, there was an article in The Washington Post yesterday um, with some anonymous sources at the CDC indicating that maybe they're going to update their guidance uh, to indicate that based on concerns, particularly around equity, that a lot of these lists were created with the goal to try to ensure that these processes played out in an equitable fashion. But I think what people are learning is what we were concerned about is that when you have very complicated, confusing uh, guidelines and requirements and processes, who does that really disadvantage? It disadvantages the people who don't have time and resources and connections and just keeping it really simple, focused on who's most at risk of dying. Let our vaccinators focus on getting shots in arms. That's how we're going to get the most equitable outcomes as well. So, so I want to come back to the, the teachers then, the, the one priority group that, that we have that is set up by profession. Um, a vast majority of the teachers in Connecticut are white. And that has been seen by some people who look at these numbers and are who are worried specifically about equity as another way in which the state is going to get more shots into the arms of more white people more quickly than people of color. Is that fair? Well, the, people, the people who make that point, I think, sometimes forget that we've also included in this category the custodial staff in the schools, the food service workers, um, the bus drivers, uh, and child care providers, uh, groups and professions that overwhelmingly skew towards uh, minority populations. So let's be complete in the analysis. I think when uh, we don't have precise ability to slice and dice all these professions based on who works in a school versus who works in an office building. But I think it is much more diverse than if you were just to look at, at, at teachers specifically. What happens with the educator clinics when you get to child care workers, people who are working outside of the traditional public school system, even private schools? How exactly is it working for those folks? So we have uh, given instructions and, and actually the, the communities are doing a fantastic job at this right now with just a week's worth of planning. Basically, in each uh, school district, uh, they're taking the lead with their local health departments, but they're responsible for making sure they're including the private schools and the child care providers in their community, in their clinics. So we're making sure those dots are connected. Beth Bai, who's our commissioner of early childhood, has been right in the middle of making sure no one kind of falls through the cracks and every ch professional child care provider who's eligible is getting married up with whatever the, the vaccination strategy is for that community.
And that's and that's going through the health districts in the community, or that's going through hospitals. That's been a little unclear because we're, as we're seeing this this rollout, it seems as though there's a lot of different types of organizations involved, depending on where you are in the state. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Uh, so you know, we've let the local jurisdictions decide. You know, do you want your health? Does your health district want to take the lead? And if they if they do, then great, run. Um, but there's been a number of health districts that for a number of reasons said, you know, we, we would prefer someone else to handle this. And in that case, you know, they get partnered up with, uh, you know, one of the large hospital systems or someone else to come in and run the clinics. So it is very different from, part, you know, as you go around the state and, and necessarily so just, again, trying to match up who has capacity and, and person power to get the job done quickly um, with, with those who, uh, you know, are ready to go. What's the plan for getting the rest of the population of people who are incarcerated currently and people who work in DOC facilities? What what we understand is uh, there was a three-week clinic or something that the DOC held for the staff to get a shot, and like 40% actually took advantage of this, which is nowhere near probably what is needed, and the numbers are still pretty low in terms of people who are actually incarcerated as well. What's the plan moving forward there? Sure. So we, um, as, as you point out, we've offered a first dose clinic for all correctional officers at this point. Um, you know, as, as I think we saw in a number of early professions like nursing home workers, for example, that that first round often starts off a little slow, you know, 40 to 50 percent. Um, but we do see the, you know, the, the interest in, in, in the willingness to be vaccinated increases over time. Uh, those people who didn't get vaccinated on the first pass are obviously still eligible. Um, you know, if, if it makes sense to do more clinics there, we will. But those people can go to any of the other vaccination sites now out in the community and get vaccinated. And then with, with regards to the offenders who are certainly at significant risk by nature of, you know, living in, in close quarters in a congregate facility, we, we've been doing the same thing with them, working backwards by age. We've vaccinated over a thousand offenders now. I think everyone over 65 and above, as of last week, had been offered vaccine. We're seeing over 70% uptake there. So that's a good start. And we'll just keep working backwards until, you know, everyone, all, everyone in all of our congregate facilities, that was a strategy that was in the last phase. And we're continuing to make uh, good progress working our way through those groups. I, I want to ask you about the the next round of vaccines that are coming out and how the states are being delivered these vaccines First of all, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which was just approved, which is a one-shot vaccine, what are the state's plans for rolling that out, and how is that different in any way than what's been done so far with the two-shot vaccines that we have from Pfizer and Moderna? Right. So, so far, there, there's nothing different in terms of how it's being distributed. So when we got visibility over the weekend on what our week one Johnson & Johnson delivery was going to be, we did what we always do is we survey all of our providers and we said, hey, who, who would like some Johnson & Johnson vaccine? And then they send in their requests and their, and their orders. We add them all up. It turned out to be about two times what was actually available, which is the normal routine for us over the last two and a half months. Um, and we work through then with the providers around who's really ready to go, who can get it, uh, it distributed quickly and administered quickly. It came at a very nice time as we were opening up this new phase. A lot of providers requested it to help accelerate educator clinics, for example. And I think we'll see a lot this week a lot of educator clinics being driven on, on J&J, um, which is great because that's a, you know, one of the real benefits of the J&J vaccine, obviously, is only one shot. So less disruption for people who are working every day. Um, and so... Um, now, the, the, the unfortunate part of J&J is the, the supply. You know, we got this big delivery this week. We're now hearing that we're not going to get any delivered next week. So, you know, we're still working out the, you know, the, I think the federal government's still kind of working out the inventory uh, logistics on J&J. But the, the, the only, but the most important thing by far is we got a third tool now to help us end this pandemic, which is incredibly safe, 
and extremely effective at preventing severe illness and death. So we're thrilled to have it. The, the supply is, of course, one issue with the J&J. The other one is that <clears throat> leading up to it, the, the coverage of it has been that it is slightly less effective overall than the other vaccines. It is not less effective in terms of preventing death or serious disease, and that's very important to make clear. But the fact is, we've already seen some reports in the Washington Post just this week, many other publications, that people are beginning to worry that there will be vaccine shopping, or that if you line up all the teachers and say, we're going to give you the J&J, a whole lot of people are going to say, hell no, I want the other one, the one that works. Yeah, no, I, I, we're we're aware, and, and and you know we'll follow that. I mean, I think most people, certainly myself included, care most about not getting severely ill and ending up in the hospital or dying. And as you point out, you know, in a highly powered clinical trial, J and J was essentially a hundred percent effective at preventing severe illness and death. Um, you know, the the one the one dose uh, aspect of it is very attractive as well. Um, and look, even for mild illness, it is extremely effective, very high rates of, uh, you know, of, of uh, reducing even mild illness. So, um, you know, look, nonetheless, we're going to provide transparency. You know, one of the things we're going to do is, is in the registration process, make it clear to people that, you know, if they're signing up for an appointment, what, what vaccine they're going to get at that appointment so that, you know, we don't end up with, you know, if someone does have a preference, um, you know, not showing up at the site and then walking away. That would be a disruption, obviously, for our vaccine administrators. So we're just going to be transparent with people, let them know what's out there, and then uh, you know let them make their own decisions. With the educator um, workforce, people getting a whole bunch of vaccines, maybe in in one clinic, is there any concern that you end up vaccinating a bunch of teachers on exactly the same time level? Given the fact that the second dose of both of these vaccines have shown to have some pretty serious side effects for people. People are missing days afterward. If you vaccinate a whole bunch of teachers and then the next day they can't come to work, that's kind of a problem for the overall plan. Yeah. No, another benefit of, of J&J in that, that scenario where you don't, you don't have that second dose. Um, but uh, I think a lot of our, our districts, in particular, some of the districts that are collaborating regionally are actually phasing in by age. They're working backwards by age as well, holding multiple clinics, pulling together the, the whole district if it's a large district or multiple districts if it's a small, um, you know, a, a more rural part of the state. So I think they're I think they're accounting for that and trying to phase it in in a thoughtful way. I, I just read this um, from a Bloomberg report about this, this variant that we've been seeing in New York, B1526. Uh, and I'm just quoting here. It says, the variant may have arisen in November in immunocompromised people who remain sick despite treatment over a long period of time. That's according to recent research. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said infectious disease specialists are often asked whether uh, these immunocompromised people should get vaccinated. He says the answer is yes, absolutely yes. So a two-part question here, Josh. First of all, how closely are you watching these variants that we've seen in places as close as New York City? Oh, no, we're watching very closely. Uh, Commissioner Gifford and our, our team at the Department of Public Health uh, is, is all over this. Uh, we, we were fortunate to work with a lot of other experts outside of state government who've been advising the governor throughout this. I think we're I think, I think we're on first name basis with the majority of the faculty at the Yale School of Public Health at this point. Um, so we have a lot of people keeping close tabs on this for us and advising us. If, and look, as I, I think you speaking to the School of Public Health, Dr. Albert Coe, who's been one of our closest advisors, he reminds us all the time, you know, when it comes to COVID, we have to be humble, right? And we have to recognize that there's more to learn every day. And if we're presented with new facts um, that result in we should take a different course, then, then that's what we should do. That's what the governor has done, I think, you know, throughout this pandemic. It, it, the second part of that question is, isn't though 
the worry about the ways in which these variants are working amongst people with compromised immune systems, isn't this an argument perhaps to prioritize some people with very specific medical conditions to get the vaccine next because we are not sure what's going to happen with some of these variants? I mean, that's one of the arguments being made by people who thought that they were next in line because of their medical conditions. Understood. And and it's another one. Again, we'll we'll follow if there's more research that comes out and if that starts to get firmed up, then you know, of course we would take a look at it. I, I would just again point people back to the, the CDC list, which is, you know, the current list of record that even they had put out. And the only category they had on their list uh, for, you know, specifically being at, at increased risk for severe illness with regards to an immunocompromised state where people with, who had had a solid solid organ transplant. So they still have a very narrow view of, of who you'd even consider off the CDC list at this point. But as I said, I mean, we're always eager to learn more and, and be presented with more facts. And if that results in a different direction, then, then, then we'll take a look at that. Last thing for you, Josh, what role did the advisory committee that the governor put together to advise this vaccine rollout, what role did that committee play? Because from what I understand from not just a few members of the committee, but several members of the committee, they weren't really consulted about this change in plans and they didn't know that this was going to happen until minutes before the press release went out. Yeah. And, and that's fair. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we've been clear that, you know, the, the decisions, you know, uh, the, and the, the different direction was made. I mean, certainly talking with Dr. Reggie Eady, the other co-chair and the, the co-chairs of the allocation committee, but not the entire committee. I mean, look, the, our allocation committee was put in a very difficult position by the CDC. They were given this list that was incredibly expansive, represented, you know, essentially two thirds of the overall adult population. I mean, that's not really, a prioritization. So, you know, at the end of the day, the, the difference, you know, between I think the CDC kind of strategy is the difference between strategy and execution, right? We're the ones responsible at the end of the day for execution. We were me- we were meeting regularly with the providers, right? The people on the ground who have to have their sleeves rolled up doing the doing the actual work. It's that's this when you move into execution phase, that's where their input became increasingly important. Yeah. The the, the fact that some of these folks weren't uh, told about this, though, put them in a pretty awkward position. They were representing equity across the state, and they weren't able to communicate properly. There is a concern about vaccine hesitancy amongst many groups, and I would guess I would just wonder if this adds to a vaccine hesitancy if people who are communicators to communities aren't actually informed about what the state's trying to do. Yeah, I, I understand the, 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 the criticism. Um, I, I get it. I mean, look, we're it, it, we're, we do try to communicate, give people as much heads up as we can. Sometimes we're moving fast. Um, but I, you know, I, I would, you know, reflect on, you know, that, you know, when we made the announcement, Dr. Reggie Eady, co-chair of the committee was there. I mean, I think the governor has been working as hard as he can really both, you know, kind of in our strategy and our policy, you know, setting specific targets for underserved communities in terms of, you know, percentage of the population we want to see vaccinated there being equal uh, to the overall percentage of the population they represent. Um, but also, you know, getting out in the field, right, doing events with, um, you know, black pastors at some of our churches, that's where he got his vaccine up in Bloomfield, um, and, and working with the community and putting resources behind it, making sure we're getting the word out with, um, you know, to, to help combat that, because it is critically important. You're, you're absolutely right about that. Do you think it's going well these first couple of days of this new phase? Yeah, I think the the bumps in the road are predictable. You know, more people wanting appointments than there are appointments to give out because we don't have enough vaccine. You know, a couple of our providers had some kind of technical issues yesterday uh, for short periods of time, but I think those are worked out. 
Um, and, you know, there's people out there right now who are frustrated because they can't find an appointment in the next uh, couple of weeks. But I think as we see more vaccine come into the state, more appointments will open up. People will be able to improve their appointment times. I'm, I'm very optimistic we'll be able to stay on the schedule that we put out there. Josh, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. That's Josh Jabal. He's the chief operating officer for the state of Connecticut. That's all the time we have for Steady Habits. Thanks so much to Kyle Constable, Bruce Putterman, and Elizabeth Hamilton for their help this week. Thanks to George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. They recorded our Steady Beats. You can always subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcast. And if you get a chance, rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help. You can also subscribe to our newsletter by going to ctmirror.org. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm John Dankosky, and I'll talk to you next week.